So in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, and uh, it, 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 well, it starts out right in verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now this, this, this passage is going to go on to unpack that more fully, but there's something, oftentimes there's, there's background in the issues of life, there's background in things that are going on, things that we could miss, things that we could easily overlook. I think of, um, well, when we think of death, we look around the, around the world today and you can't overlook Ukraine. And we don't fully, from our perspective, quite far away, we don't understand all that's going on in that conflict. We know that there's all kinds of stuff going on. And we know it, it can be kind of boiled down, really, to, okay, well, if, um, Ukraine, good, Russia, evil. That's kind of the simplicity that's been boiled down for us in a pretty unified media. But there must be more to it than that. I don't want to reinterpret that, but there must be more to it than that. I, I got another glimpse into it uh, just recently, and that is there is a spiritual dimension. And that's in, intriguing because there's normally a spiritual dimension to most of what is going on around us in life. Well, in Ukraine, I did not know that the Russian Orthodox Church was founded actually in Ukraine over a thousand years ago when a, a, a ruler in the area of Ukraine, yes, named Vladimir, became a Christian, and so then all of his people became Christians, and that was the founding of the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, it's interesting, the Russian Orthodox Church, for all of these Russian peoples through the centuries, was founded in the area that is now Ukraine, and yet it was considered the Russian Orthodox Church, first of all. And then more recently, about three years ago, the uh, patriarch or the head of all the worldwide Orthodox, considered Eastern Christianity churches, um, ag agreed to give the Ukraine Orthodox Church its separation, its own authority free, no longer under the rule of the Russian Orthodox Church. So there became, in essence, a Ukrainian Orthodox, separate from the Russian Orthodox Church. And we don't care about any of that. We're Baptists, right? But that was a huge deal in Russia. That was a huge slap in the face to the Russians in the Russian church that these, their family, were separated, ripped away from them. It was 40% of the Russian Orthodox Church. So that was a, that was a big deal. And the fact that the um, Russian Orthodox Church, though founded in Ukraine, later moved the, the head office, the headquarters, the center of it, moved to Moscow with everything else in the Russia-Soviet um, empire years, that um, they still felt that connection. And there's a spiritual dynamic through which, there's a spiritual lens through which this conflict is seen differently by two different sides. One wants freedom from outsiders in the conduct of their worship, they would say. The other wants unity in the church that has always been of one people and sees again what's now two countries as one people. There's a spiritual dynamic at play behind the scenes that becomes a powerful motivator in the way people that share that background are going to look at the situation. It's driving it differently. My point in all that is simply this. There is, there is spiritual background to what's going on in the world. There's spiritual background to what's going on around you. And Ephesians chapter 2 kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit. 
reminds us of that, shows us some of what was and shows us something of what is. So Ephesians chapter 2, we did read through it already. It begins on a somewhat confusing note. Because it says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. We've got to pause right away and ask the question, what does dead mean? Because it must not mean what we think it means. Otherwise, we're going to be tempted to just put less into the whole passage. That would kind of mean something, but it doesn't really mean what it says it means because obviously I wasn't dead. So the very premise on which it starts isn't really true. It just must be kind of figurative language. Unless we misunderstand death. Unless we interpret death wrongly as death is the end of me, as death is merely a matter of this physical mortal life when a person is alive or dead, and that's then what it must mean in the passage. What if the mortality side, what if, the, what, if what happens with our physical life is actually a corollary to something that is spiritually true? What if the spiritual side of it is actually more important so that the spiritual side of it actually causes what you think is the main part of death, which is the physical side? I would assume that most of us, when we think of death, we think of, of a, a, a dead body. We think of a person physically dying. That's the first thing that pops into our mind. But that's the secondary piece of it. Let me go back. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, after God has made man in his own image, he tells Adam, all of this garden is for you. I have created this for you to enjoy with me. We'll live here together. It's going to be great. Only there's this one tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Because on the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. That's the English. Now, the Hebrew would read it slightly different. The way the Hebrew emphasizes something, you will not just die. You will surely, absolutely, no doubt about it, die. The way the Hebrew emphasizes that is, in, is actually by restatement. The Hebrew would say, in the day that you eat of it, dying you will die. Kind of a strange way to say it. Dying you will die. But actually, I think there's something to that. More than just an emphasis. Because what happens now, what happens after they do eat the fruit of that tree, you remember the encounter in Genesis chapter 3 with, with, with the woman and the serpent there at the tree. And the serpent says something like, oh, that's a mighty good-looking fruit there on that tree. Lydia says, Yeah. He says, go ahead. She says, no, 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 no. The Lord God said that, that we shall not eat of the fruit of that tree, neither shall we touch it lest we die. And Satan says, ah, you're, you're not going to die. And you're, your eyes are not going to sleep the sleep of death. In fact, when you eat that fruit, God himself knows your eyes are going to be open even wider. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. Oh, well, that's desirable. And you know the story from there. Eve takes it, gives to Adam. Adam's like, oh, Adam takes it. And, and then, then, well, then the trouble starts. 
And, and, and the shortcut to the end of the story, the end of it with the pronouncement of, of the curse because of sin and this rebellious act against God's will, that they are exiled from the garden. An angel with a flaming sword is there at the gate that they cannot return. And Adam and Eve are exiled out of God's presence, out of the garden, to live and exist off of the sweat of their brow in a thorn-cursed, hard and difficult world. That's, that's the end of Genesis chapter 3. And it goes downhill from there. But that tells us something about death because Adam, Adam continues to live some 900 and something years. Adam lives a long time and yet God said, in the day you eat of it, dying you will die. And the only thing that happens on that day is that they are separated from God. Maybe we ought to read it, separating from God you will be separated. On the very day that they separated from God's will and purpose, they separated themselves from God's presence and all of his goodness. That on the day that they separated, they were separated. On the day that they ate of it, dying, they died. So death is especially separation, being separated from God. And now let me go back around. The, the reality of that actually was a help. As Mary and the family saw what was going to be happening with Brian. Because they understood that yes, he's going to be away from us. But he's going to depart and be with Jesus, which is far better. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's a separation from the body into the Lord's presence awaiting a resurrection body. There's a separation from us to be there. Humans, our souls, our spirits are not, are not um, omnipresent. We are not everywhere at once. We are here or we are there. Brian was here, but now he is there. And so he's not here. He's separated from us, and there's the loss of it. There's a loss of it for us. But death is essentially a separation and a secondary aspect of that. The separation of the, the, the spirit from the body then also is, the, is then the physical death of that mortal body. It's a secondary thing, not the thing. And that helps us understand what chapter 2 and verse 1 says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were separated from God. That is a reality that all of us experience. I experienced that up until the point that I was 17 years old. And then, because of God's grace, as I believed in Jesus as my Savior, I was reconciled with God. I was brought back into right relationship with God. And then I could grow in, I could walk in, I could live out that relationship I had a new covering, in a sense, new clothes to wear. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Ephesians is going to talk to us about putting off the old and putting on the new. We, we are, we, I was given access into God's presence that I did not have before. I was given a new walk. We're going to be talking about that in Ephesians. You were dead. You were separated from God in trespasses and sins. Fallen humanity is separated from relationship with God. Now, 
I, I should pause here and mention that when we gather together, there's a group of us that gather on Monday mornings early, and we give Bob sort of a push start on his, on his message study for the week. And one of the guys in the group, Justin, made a comment early on. He said, just one of the first, one of the first questions I ask after we read the passage around the room is, is I said, okay, what did you notice there? And, and he said, well, I noticed that it says, you were, not you are. That you were dead. This is something that was true in the past of Christians, but is no longer true anymore. And he said, I thank God for that. And he was grabbing the passage as a whole because in, in, in chapter 4, we're going to see that, that it's God, or rather in verse 4, we're going to see it's God's doing that it's were instead of are. That we were in the past dead in trespass and sins. We were separated from God. And so we are following the course of this world, we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. Following the course of this world, we are living according to the norms of the present age. Following the prince of the power of the air, that, that the prince of the power of the air, that spirit working in the sons of disobedience, Satan is ruling over spiritual minions who mislead and misuse and abuse humanity, thereby influencing the overall spirit of the age, influencing the culture, the tone of our society. That the devil in his rebellion against God has carried humanity, fallen humanity, away with him, contrary to God's will, desires, and purposes, and is misleading us, misusing us in his rebellion for his own purposes. That's the reality. It says that that which seems normal to us, the course of this world, how things are, the evening news, the war in Ukraine. This is the devil's work. This is his influence in the world, but it presses even closer than that. The, the idea is that lost humanity is led by, follows, serves, aligns with, is under the influence, does the bidding of. I like under the influence of Satan, best of all. It, it kind of, now don't necessarily think of Satan in terms of he's personally attacking you and don't, don't write it off that the devil made me do it. That's not what I'm saying. We'll get there. But, but there is an influence of his minions. The screw tape letters, a classic by C.S. Lewis, kind of fleshes this out in a fun way. Imagine what it is in the, in the scheming of the enemy and his minions, his principalities and powers that are talked about through the book of Ephesians. That they have this, this um, impact and influence upon humanity. So that lost humanity is led by, follows, and serves. The tone of the present age. What do I mean by that? Think of the individualism. The me first or me centered tone. The relativism. That everything's kind of squishy. The truth is sort of what you make of it. Or, or true is what's true to you. You have your truth. I have my truth. Think of the sensuality of our present age. Think of how political power is twisted into the domination of others. So dominion, given by God over creation, has been turned into domination of others. Think of how even what is probably the best system for fallen humanity to have, to have relative freedom together in society, the capitalist system is centered out of, it's based on the, the reality that humans are basically self-centered. 
that we will generally, when all things being equal, we will do what's generally in our own best interest. And capitalism thrives on that. Now, if you couple that with a self-governing, a self-controlling people who understand themselves to be redeemed by and accountable to a loving God, that self-governing or self-control within a free market system has the best chance at a healthy, free life together in society on earth, but even capitalism. I think the best system we got, certainly not perfect because of us, is based on self-centered Centeredness. There's, there's a self-esteem materialism that, that guides what we buy, the cars we drive, even the clothes we wear. The clothes. Let's talk about clothes. How about neckties? Whoever thought of that? What practical purpose does that? I remember I had a friend when I was young and being discipled. I, I had a friend who had worked in a grocery store chain, and it was the corporate policy. All the employees at the time had to wear neckties. One time he's, he's, he's trying to intervene in a shoplifting situation, and the guy gets a little rough, and he grabs him by the necktie. And that, that attractive piece of clothing suddenly became a, a leash or a noose around his neck. It was clip-ons from then on, he said. But who thought of neckties? Let me, let me put a handle on so that if the boss is unhappy, he's got something to grab me by. Okay, ladies, high heels, really? Well, part of the purpose of that is uh, um, uh, um, that, that, that men can, can, can enjoy your legs and watch you walk, Right? What is it about high heels? What's the thing with that? Well, how, high, how tall I am matters. Okay, I don't, I don't want to go too far down that. How about your Nike shirt? How much are they paying you to advertise for them? Oh, oh, oh that's right. We pay them. Whether it's Nike, Columbia, whoever, North Face, it doesn't matter, but they've got a good system going on. You pay them to advertise their stuff, and more people who want to be like you or with you buy it because you've become part of it. How about, oh, this is my favorite. I'm going to sound like your father now. I'm going to betray my age. I'm going to sound old. But what is it with buying jeans, brand new, that are already torn? <laughs> I can tear them myself, and sooner or later I will. And I used to think that was the time to buy new ones. I am so behind. Like I said, I'm old. I don't understand it. But it's only because we didn't just decide, you know what? Worn out, torn clothes, those are the ones that are more valuable. That's where I'll spend my money. We didn't come to that. The, the whole mood, the whole tone of the culture and society around us, the course of this world told us that. The demonic forces have a lot of fun with silly humanity. You know, I think I know a couple of their names. Doesn't this sound like a demonic sort of name? I mean, C.S. Lewis had screw tape. I've come up with a similar name of one who is very influential and intentionally turning you toward his means and his ends for his own satisfaction and profiteering off of you. And his evil name is Google. Doesn't that sound like a demonic name, Google? 
Yeah. With a cute, colorful spin on it. He's got a cousin named Meta. Or Metaverse. These influences, the, 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 the control, the direction of society that's under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. Uh, think of, think of a, 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 a spiritual warfare where captives of that war have happily begun serving the rebellion, thinking that's where their satisfaction can be found. Sons of disobedience. And, and uh, who are that way, and so that's what they do. And among whom we all once lived, verse 3 says, in the passions of our own flesh. There you go. It's not merely the devil made me do it. It's not merely under the influence of the course of this age and a spiritual powers that are influential within the course of this age, but it also is that I'm following the passions of our flesh. Now, flesh is not always inherently negative. You think of flesh, well, that's a sin nature. No, flesh is not always. Jesus came in flesh. He, the expression, well, what do you expect? I'm only human, is only, only works if you, if you understand it as I'm only fallen human. I'm only sinful human because Jesus was completely, fully human. He came in real, genuine flesh humanity. And yet in our natural humanity, in our fallen humanity, we carry out, first of all, the desires of the body. We are driven by the cravings of our fallen physical bodies. I want more. I hunger for things and I want to supersize that. And your body craves, your stomach wants, you love the taste of sugar and salt, and neither of them are good for you, right? And yet we, we long for that. I know a little is needed. You need salt in your diet, and too much gives you high blood pressure, and then the doctor nags me, and it's a, it's a mess. The, the carrying out the desires of the, of, of, the, of the body are not merely hunger. There are other physical appetites, and those are stirred up within our culture and in the course of this age. In fact, the, it, it was true in Corinth as well. The, the Corinthians had a saying. They rationalized things that they allowed and just put up with and did and say, ah, it's in the body, it really doesn't matter. What difference does it make? The saying was, the little proverb they came up with was, well, you know, the stomach's for food and food is for the stomach. The stomach wants food, so you just give the stomach what it wants. Food is for the stomach, so you just give the body what it is craving for, hungering for. In all kinds of ways. And yet Paul says, I will buffet my body. I will make it my servant. I will not be mastered by it. We carry out the desires of the body and of the mind. Much of what we then live out in our body actually begins in our minds. The desires, the lust, the addictive patterns, the self-serving, the judging of others, the pride in oneself. And if I buy this, then people are going to think a certain way of me. If I do certain things, if I say something, the ways that I will be viewed by others, the honor or shame that is going to come upon me, all of that is worked out within our own mind. And living in the passions of our own desires in this passage, we find those three, those three crucial threats that humanity faces, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All of them are wrapped up in here, and we don't have a chance. So that we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind.
And may I say it, that is still humanity's state by and large. Children of wrath. And so the people around us who are not believers in Jesus, who have not been saved in Christ, this is still their state. They are, as Paul's going to say in the next verse, they are without hope and without God in the world. And when the end of physical life comes and they're separated from their family and this life and their mortal body, their destination is not to depart and to be with Jesus, which is far better. Their destination is eternally separated from God. Without hope and without God in the world. And they're all around us. But as Justin reminded us right off the bat, that is not where we now live. Such were some of you. You were by nature children of wrath. But how did it change? What happened? You were, but we are not. Because in verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. You think of John 3.16 there, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So whoever believes, whoever, anyone, there's no, there's no qualifications, there's no behavioral standards, there's no meeting a minimum bar. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And life does not mean just continuing forever. Life means relationship with. Jesus described life as the opposite of death in separation, but he said this is the eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To live in right relationship with God, knowing in fellow, back restored as it was in that garden. Walking with God, without bouncing. Walking with God in the cool of the day. And that's the way the book ends. That's the way Revelation ends in chapter 22, isn't it? A new heaven and a new earth which is God's garden where God himself dwells with his humanity without any curse, without any tear, without any sorrow, without any separation of death. That is our future. That is the uh, hope of his calling, as Ryan described it last week. But God being rich in mercy because of his love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God's nature God's intentional inclination toward us is for us, to overcome for us the obstacle of sin that separate us. We have a sense sometimes that God is distant and judging. We may be allowing us in but holding his nose. That is not at all the tone here. God is rich in mercy. He, he is intentionally inclined toward you and for you. Made us alive. By grace you have been saved. God did it, not us. From separated to enemies to right relationship. From enmity to unity. From exile to home. From foreigner to family. From outlaw to in-law. We belong. We have been saved. 
you have been saved. This is a Greek perfect tense. Sometimes grammar matters. This is one of those occasions where you have been saved. It was something that was done in the past. You were saved in the past. I was 17 years old. And because of what was done then, that continues into the present and on into the future. I have been saved such that I am still saved. Not by what I am still doing, but because of what God did, which changed everything from that point on into the future. A past action with continuing results. You have been rescued, made right. He made us alive. He rejoined us to him. He raised us up with Jesus. There's Romans 6 again, that we were buried with Christ in his death. We have been raised with him to walk in newness of life. He's going to get to that. He raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a, a strange statement thrown in here. He seated us in the heavenlies, but here you are at Brush Prairie. There seems some dichotomy there. We belong, we positionally, we belong as much in God's presence in heaven as if we were already there. God already sees the work all finished and you sitting in Christ with him already. It's a done deal. At the same time, that statement is a, is a statement of position or authority. That Jesus, when he rises from the dead and he ascends to the Father's right hand, he ascends over all principalities and powers, any spiritual authority on this earth that would try to lay claim upon you. Has no claim on you. Because we are risen in Christ. When, I, when I've encountered people with demonic oppression, that's my go-to place. That's the reality. The reality is, is not I'm claiming putting on armor in Ephesians chapter 6, but the reality is I'm claiming that what God says in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 is true. That, that the enemy has no authority here. If that one will, will name the name of Jesus and claim salvation in Jesus and God's forgiveness in Jesus, that enemy has no claim upon them. There's no room for you here. You don't belong anymore. That's our stand in spiritual warfare. What God has done for us and the change that he has wrought, that we are already seated above any spiritual power or authority. There is a spiritual reality, and we in a material, logical, rational, well, it used to be rational, Western world, we, we often downplay the spiritual reality behind the scenes because we don't see them as evident as we do other places in the world. And yet God has raised us, seated us in Christ for a purpose, so that. And this is really where it gets good. This is really what it's all about. I should have, I should have just jumped here first. So that, here's God's purpose, and all that God has done for us, in the coming ages, he would show you off. In the coming ages, he would show, he would demonstrate, prove, reveal, including to angels who are watching the church in the present age. And he will show them in the age to come as well the immeasurable riches, the above and beyond abundance of his grace and his kindness, his good generosity, his generosity in goodness. His overwhelming above and beyond goodness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's purpose for you all through the future is to so pile on his grace and mercy that the angels watching this say, wow. 
that you are going to be, if I may, trophies of his grace on into the future. And not those plastic ones that the kids collect and then they end up in the closet and then 10 years later you're saying, what in the world do we do with these? And you hate to throw out their accomplishments, but really. The, the, we, we, God is going to continue to demonstrate and what he has done with us. It's kind of like the, the marvel of, I showed some time ago, this beautiful glass animal. is a glass giraffe. And, well, you look at the giraffe, it's pretty good. The head is, is actually really well done. It details is, is, is quite impressive there. The neck's all right. The body's sort of fat and round. This is a giraffe who ate way too much. This was a giraffe who supersized it. Too many stops to fast food. His legs are, are a little fat, not long and slender the way a giraffe's are, and they're all kind of grouped together at the end. You say, well, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a nice giraffe. It's made out of glass. That's pretty, but it's, it's not the best giraffe I've ever seen. But then when you hear the rest of the story, that that giraffe was actually made from broken Coke bottles, broken glass that was useful for nothing, that was dangerous at best, and could just go off to the garbage dump. And yet some, some people gathered up those rejected bottles that could not be because they were too scratched and marred or whatever. They couldn't be used to keep refilling for Coca-Cola. And they reclaimed them, sanded the paint off them, and would, let, would then melt them down and remake the same glass, broken glass. They would remake it into these beautiful animals, figurines. Beautiful bowls and plates and dishes. We have a set of, of, uh, of glass goblets made. And, and they're, again, they're, they're each different. They're not perfection, but they're handmade, beautiful glassware that were redeemed from the garbage dump. And there's something about that. One of the things I like about that Swazi Glassworks that we brought back with us is it says something about our redemption, that this is what God has done with us. We were nothing. We were useless. We were broken. We were without hope and without God in the world. And he has gathered us up. And, but the thing is, we don't just sit on a shelf. We have been saved by God's grace. The next verse is probably the best known verses in this passage. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. None of us could earn it. None of us can deserve it. It is a gift of God. By, by saying, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, we are simply accepting the gift. There's no credit in that. This salvation, it goes on to say, is this is not our own doing. God has done it for us. It is not, is not a result of works so that none of us could boast in ourselves. Our boast is only in God. Paul says, I will boast in the cross, not in anything that I do. The entire preceding declaration, the salvation that God has done, the but God, all of that is not our doing, it is God's doing. It is a largesse from the overflowing wellspring of divine compassion, lavished on a set of spiritual incapables. That's us. Spiritually incapable, and yet God has lavished upon us this goodness and compassion as a gift freely. No cause on our part. And Wearsby adds here, if, if we have not been saved by our good works, we are not lost again by our bad works. That my disobedience, my willful stubbornness does not disqualify me from the 
from the life in Christ God has already given me. I wasn't saved by my works. I am not kept by my works. But I have been saved for works. We love verses 8 and 9. We memorize it. And we overlook verse 10, which is the culmination of the whole thing. This is what it was for. You were but God so that we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. Now, that, now, now there's a beautiful word. The, the word workmanship there, the Greek word, looks almost identical to the Latin word, which then is really, really close, an extra letter, I think, to our word poem. It's a creative artwork. It's a creative handiwork, a creative masterpiece. Think old master's painting. Think of a beautiful epic poem. Think of a lovely song that just works at so many levels. Think of that movie that is a, is a work of art because though you've seen it a dozen times, you look forward to seeing it again. And though you know what they're going to say, you love the way they say it. It was so well done. Think of that beautiful work of creative artistry and God says, that's what you are to me. You are his masterpiece. Workmanship can almost sound like, yeah, you're God's project. And you know what it is. You buy a project car, maybe, and it always stays a bit of a project car. You, you, some, some people might have a project person, and that project person really tends to stay more of a project. You are not God's project person. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's opus, his great work. You are the one in whom God delights to show off to others. I redid a downstairs bathroom. People come over. I can't wait to show them the bathroom. It's like, it's a little weird. Why is Bob hustling us off to the bathroom? I want to show you the shower that I did. Look, it's beautiful. It's kind of like that. Imagine God can't wait to show you off. You know, it's like grandkids. They do these wonderful things. and They, they, they color something. Our, our grandson Jamie today, you know what he did? He cut his own pancakes. That is so cool. You're like, wow. Okay, Bob, that's, that's, that's good stuff, cutting pancakes, yeah. I do that too. You don't get excited about me. But it's a grandparent thing, right? You are God's delight. You are his workmanship. You are his creative masterpiece. And that good work that he is working in you, he delights in, he thrills, and he can't wait to show you off to everybody. Do you see yourself that way? You are his creative masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should be able to walk in them. That should walk in them. That should, it, it, it kind of smells like an obligation, and it is not. It is a natural outgrowth, yes, but it's not an obligation should. It's a Greek subjunctive mood, which means now you are able to. It's a possibility mood. The tone of the Greek is it's now possible for you. What you never could before, you were by nature children of wrath. You are now by new creation children of God to manifest His work and His glory to all creation. That's what He has made us for. This is where James and Paul meet together, for instance, that we were given life 
to live. We were given a right relationship with God to live and breathe in that right relationship with God, that the life of God might be manifest in us, that the fruit of the Spirit would be born in our lives, that the likeness of God would be seen in our lives. That's what we were created for. That's His masterful work within us. God is at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. What is it going to look like for you? That's what we want to get. We want to push into the application. What I want you to settle in, first of all, the point of this passage is look what God has done for you so that when people see the, the, the new life in your life, what's the question that they ask? It's kind of like when you see something beautiful and you say, well, wow, who made that? It's like when the people come into our house and I play a little coy and I show them the bathroom. Oh, wow, that's really not. Who made that? <laughs> I did. The, the, when people see the new in you, they say, who's the artist? That we, in our good works, which God works in us, we would glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's the purpose here. That's what it's all about. What does it look like? But let's, let's, let's put a little flesh on the bones of the application before we close so you got nothing to hang this on. What it's going to look like, what he's going to unfold for us in the, in the following chapters 4, 5, and 6 are things like that new life in us looks like God choosing thieves and takers and, and making them into generous givers who work and labor with their own hands so they have something to share with others in time of need. It looks like those who forgive others even as God in Christ has forgiven us. That's Christ's forgiveness now displayed in my life. Look what God has done. It's when a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and he gives himself for her. And, and what you see there in that relationship reminds you of your Savior. Look what God has done. So we're going to get to that. You can, you can peek ahead. You are free to read ahead and now say, what does his workmanship in me look like? But I want, want you to know today is that you are his workmanship. You have been redeemed. You have been created. You have been made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ for a purpose. That God would be able to show you off to everyone forever as his own whom he delights in, and whom he is not finished with. But now you are his personal masterpiece. Let's pray. Father, would we indeed live out some of that? Would we indeed live out some of the reality of what you have done for us in Jesus, the new life you have given us? Father, we would pray in reality that you are our Savior. You have given us life and this salvation, this rescue out of our own lostness and fallenness and sin is not of anything that we try to do harder or better, but it's by believing in Jesus who lived and died for us in our place. For all of our guilt, all of our shame laid on Him instead of us, that if we will simply accept your forgiveness in his name, what he did for us. You restore us to life with you and will live your life in us. 
Father, thank you for that. And Lord, would you, would you strengthen us first of all, before we even take a next step into anything we do. Father, turn our eyes back to you in terms of your grace. That who am I that the Lord of glory would bestow such love upon me? And that we would soak that in, Father, and delight in you and your good favor upon us to some way how you so delight in us. We pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.